Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The Wait was recorded in Indonesia and produced on the lands of the Darawal, Wurundjeri, and Bunurong peoples, whose sovereignty was never ceded. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. This episode contains details of suicide. Listen with care. There are times when this weight, being stuck, is literally unbearable. We are here in front of UNHCR headquarters. Already start hunger strike and we chant. This is what I have to do. I have no other way. Last year, refugees were holding demonstrations in six cities around the country. We went to the Jakarta demo together. It felt like a final act of desperation. Yeah, no food, no water. It's very, very hot and humid here. Are you worried about safety and health concerns with over 20 men hunger striking? Actually, I don't care about consequences because my life here is like, this is not human, human beings' life. I was trying to hide behind you. The place was crawling with security. The policy which is going on in Indonesia is hugely a part of Australia's policy. It has become a national-wide demonstration. It doesn't matter from which nationality. We want justice! We want justice! For us, refugees living in Indonesia protesting isn't done lightly, but people are still taking the risk. Why are refugees around the country rising up in protest? And what are they risking? I'm Ojgan Marafizadeh. I'm Nicole Kirby. This is The Wait. A podcast series that uncovers how Australia is pushing its borders out. And brings you into the lives of refugees like me who are caught on the borderline in Indonesia. So it was me that wanted to go to the demonstration in Jakarta, Mojgan, not you. I'm actually not really the protesting type. I don't like to get involved in the street demos. Even the advocacy work that I do actually creates tension in my family sometimes. And my father, for example, he prefers me to keep my head down and be quiet because he's afraid that it ruins our chances of resettlement if I speak up. Even back in Iran, I wasn't politically active. But here, in this situation, these circumstances, I really can't stay quiet. And it's the situation that had made me start doing what I do and be an outspoken advocate. Yeah, now in Jakarta, you do a lot of advocacy work. Yeah, I do lots of meetings, talks, awareness raising and distributing donations. It's more possible to do it in Jakarta rather than other parts of Indonesia because where we are now, there are a few NGOs, but in other cities, it's not like that. Mm-hmm. So there is a big community of refugees in and around Jakarta, but there's also refugees scattered across Indonesia. 
That's right. And as a refugee, I can't travel to find out what's going on in those places. If I was caught, I'd end up in detention. I took a flight to Makassar on the island of Sulawesi. When I met refugees there, the mood was stifling. It was like this stagnant feeling weighing through the air. It was so different to the community that you'd introduced me to in Jakarta. What happened when you got off the plane? I went to this rundown old hotel. It's been converted into an asylum seeker accommodation now. When I went there, security was hovering around. They were watching every movement I made like hawks. Maybe I knock again. Oh, okay. I think I'm just outside your room. Yeah, where are you? Should I stay here or go somewhere else? I met Hussein and his family there. Hi, cooking. Inside bathroom. Inside toilet. Already three years. I cooking inside toilet. Hussein and his wife have five kids and they live in these two small rooms. There's a picture of the Sydney Harbour Bridge on the walls and not much else around. No furniture, really. We sat on the ground and they told me about their family. I'm from Iraq. My name is Hussein. 32. And you're showing me on your phone pictures of your family's Australian citizenship certificates. My family all lived in Australia. Uh, almost 11 years, and my mother teacher, my father mechanic, car, and my brother uh, also mechanic, sister also doctor. Hussein's hoping to get to Australia on a family reunification refugee visa. I haven't seen any successful family reunification visas from Indonesia. I've heard of it happening from other places, but not from Indonesia. This community housing, it's a really sad place. It's where Hussein and his family were sent after being locked up in Kupang Immigration Detention Centre. Them sent me in Kupang. The Kupang, you don't know what come back. Yeah, Kupang is in the far east of Indonesia, right? It's quite a remote island. Yes. And put me inside jail three years, eight months. Me and my children in one room inside jail. I have five children. Cannot play in and cannot do anything normal. Just children inside jail. What do you think three years about children three years inside jail? They're very bad. And you know, yeah, they make us in here animal. And also I am. As I say, I wait. Hussein lives in Nagraha shelter. That's a shelter where just a few months ago, a young Afghan refugee took his own life, as if he was 22 years old. At that time, Hussein sent me a photo of the two of them standing arm in arm. Asif committed suicide in that building that they live in. When I heard that news, I was sad, but I wasn't shocked. Just now I don't care my life. Some animal, you know. You know the animal? 
exactly some my life. Exactly not have different. Exactly like this, he have room, he eat, he sleep. He cannot do everything. Maybe animal more better from me. He can help woman. Just me. Cannot do anything. There's two kinds of refugees in Indonesia, really. The people who get no housing, no financial support, and most of us live in or around Jakarta. We basically try to live off our savings or money sent from our family and friends. But there's one problem, and that's the longer we're here, the harder it gets. Then there's the other group. There are around 8,000 refugees and asylum seekers in Indonesia that are living in community shelters, like Hossein, the one we just heard from. Almost everyone who lives in a city other than Jakarta or the mountains you know, surrounding it, they are living in one of these shelters. And they were put there when they were being released from immigration detention centers, and that's where they've stayed in ever since. These shelters are organised by IOM. Last episode, we heard how Australia is starting to pull back that funding. But this is one thing that they're continuing to fund IOM to do. In 2018, Australia reduced this funding and since then IOM has capped this caseload. So no new people are being let into these shelters. What about the people who are still in the shelters? The refugees and asylum seekers who are under the care of IOM get a basic accommodation and an allowance that is equivalent to 125 Australian dollars for a month for an adult and around $30 for a kid to live on. You know, it's cheap to live in Indonesia, but seriously, this amount of money doesn't really get you much. In episode one, we saw what it was like for all the people who have no support at all. They're stuck in that military barracks in Calideres with no power, no water, relying on food donations. I mean, this situation is bad, but the Australian government funding is making a bad situation a little bit better, isn't it? Well, yes, but you saw inside Hussein's place. I also don't think that's a suitable place for a family of seven to live in as well. What else did you find in Makassar? When I went down to the main part of Makassar, there were hundreds of refugees demonstrating. They were outside the UNHCR building, holding banners and megaphones, families, kids. It's not possible for him to record his voice. I met a group of men over the road. He doesn't like to uh, record his voice. Okay, so we will record you just interpreting. Is that okay? Uh, there are about six of them, and at least half of them had recently been detained. 13 days ago. He has been released 13 days ago and has... Uh, In Indonesia, been, immigration and local authorities are responsible for refugees and asylum seekers, not the national government. So the conditions can be really different from one place to another. But I heard that the head of immigration detention center in Makassar is particularly harsh. Yeah, that's what I found when I got there too. Refugees and asylum seekers are being arrested and locked up without having committed crimes, not knowing when they'll be released. If you get phone or anything after that, they will punish you. As we were sitting there in the park, this Sudanese guy Yusuf arrived. They put you in a small room, two meter or three meter, for three months, two months inside. You cannot walk in, we cannot go anything. Just 
toilet inside, water inside, everything inside. Like really jail. It's not like you know detention center because there are some restrictions that apply to all refugees and asylum seekers in Indonesia, and breaching them could land you back in detention. It is like jail. They punish us like criminal. And for people in Makassar, there are all of these extra rules and regulations. For starters, everyone has to report to the immigration detention center each month. You cannot ride a motorbike. You can, you are not supposed to drive a car. Uh, you're not supposed to get out of the city, I mean Makassar, and uh, you cannot work. Being in relationship with the local girls is forbidden for us. From uh, 6am until 10pm, you're free to move around. After that, if we get late, so we'll be put back there to the detention centre. Yeah. These men are the key organisers of regular demonstrations in Makassar, demanding a fair resettlement process. They say, we will arrest you, Yusuf, again. I say, no problem. Just I make demonstrations for ask for my right. You want to arrest me? Please arrest me. I am not afraid. I cannot die inside my accommodation. Because already, you know, every refugee, they hate the life here. Really, this life, I think better to we die. Because we, most of the refugees, they, you know, miss the hope. How was the feeling like when you were talking to them? What were they like? Yusuf was reckless and ready to go, but the feeling was tense. Everyone was cautious, nervous to even be talking to me. Every single refugee who participated in this demonstration, we all feel the same, you know. We are ready to be taken back to detention centre because we have been threatened. This protest was in front of UNHCR, but they were also protesting in front of the Australian consulate. We have done everything we could. We write to the UNHCR, we wrote to uh, embassy. Now we have uh, protested in front of the Australian consulate. They uh, responded with a letter and they actually indirectly encouraged refugees to go back to their country our country where the war and conflict is still going on, which means go back to your country, die there, don't die here. Junaid is a Rohingya refugee and he's quite outspoken and is trying to advocate for his community. So this is a system that uh, designed to oppress refugees. Many people have committed suicide and many people have actually died in these systems. If we were Supposed to go to Australia by boat, we have taken the boat long, long ago. We have no intention to go to Australia by boat. It is not worth risking our life to go to Australia by boat. Who does not welcome refugee? Australian government has to stop telling this, you know, to the citizens. So, yeah, you're right. Like, a lot of Australians think that refugees in Indonesia are sitting here waiting to hop on a boat to go to Australia. If that's not what's happening, what's happening here? Well, we are waiting for the UNHCR and the other resettlement country to find us resettlement through the uh, UNHCR humanitarian uh, resettlement program. The next day, I was boarding a flight when I received these messages and videos over WhatsApp. Nicole, police arrested all of us. Please report this to everywhere that you can. It wasn't until the flight landed that I found out what had happened. 
26 people had been arrested after a peaceful demonstration in front of the Australian consulate, detained without charge and held indefinitely. So, Rizka, can you tell us what rights do refugees and asylum seekers have under the Indonesian law? So, actually, Indonesia has ratified eight out of nine the UN Human Rights Core Conventions. So it shows, actually, Indonesia acknowledge its obligation to the fulfillment of human rights, even though it hasn't ratified the 51 Convention on Refugee. But... In practice, in real life, we are experiencing lack of rights. Yeah, Indonesia has ratified many conventions, has agreed upon many rights. But in practice, it's a, a whole lot different things. There's just one organization in Indonesia providing legal aid for refugees and asylum seekers, and it runs on very minimal resources. They tried to advocate in this case, but without much impact. Suaka is the Legal Aid Institute of Indonesia's Refugee Rights Program. I've volunteered there as an interpreter before, and I've been mentored by their lawyers. Rizga Agianti is the director of Suwaka. What access do refugees have to the justice system, and how does it work in practice? There is an immigration and also police officers who really wants a refugee being detained. On whatever reason it is, even they want to make up some reasons. Immigration doesn't have a trial. They have the regulation on arresting people, yes, which says they should show the warrant consists of name, reason, and location of detention. But how many cases of arrest conduct with the proper procedure, especially toward refugees? I would say none. The regulation is there that they should have access to the lawyer, but in fact, it's very difficult And it's all discretionary of immigration chief or police chief. And what's the maximum amount of time that a refugee or asylum seeker can be held in detention in Indonesia? Ten years. In immigration detention centre, it's up to ten years. So that's it with the immigration. They have no trials. They don't really need an investigation. They just need a decision letter from the chief of the office of the immigration to arrest someone. The way Rizka talks about how arbitrary the rules are makes me think of something else that I've heard a lot about. Over the years, I've spoken to a lot of refugees who manoeuvre around the rules or even out of detention centres by paying bribes. For example, someone I know who isn't in Indonesia now got a family member out of detention by paying around 1500 Australian dollars one time. They'd never speak about it publicly, but it's like something that happens all the time. I've paid bribes and probably almost anyone who's lived in Indonesia has. Transparency International released a report in 2017 in which one in three people said that they'd paid a bribe just to get access to basic services. So it's a pretty ordinary part of daily life in Indonesia. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't think that's what happened in Makassar though, but what happened when those guys were arrested? Police confiscated their phones on arrest and they were sent to the detention centre. In the end, they were held for 40 days. But at the time, we didn't know how long they'd be held for. And protests are cancelled for now, right? Mm Mm-hmm. After months, they were tired and demoralised. Yusuf told me that he went back and staged a solo demonstration, but he says he was beaten by police and ended up in hospital.
It's only a couple of hours by plane from Makassar to Batam, which is in the far northwest of Indonesia. By the time I arrived there, refugees had already heard about the arrests in Makassar. Because refugees live so closely in detention centres and then, you know, community shelters and they get moved from one end of the country to another end in just a moment's notice, they have a lot of friends and friendships that stretch across Indonesia. I took a taxi to the refugee accommodation there. It's away from the main part of the city, right near the ferry terminal that takes you to Singapore in half an hour. That's where the refugee accommodation is, right on the border. Yeah. It's only men there, packed into this stark concrete tower with boxy dorm rooms. When I arrived there, a demonstration was underway. A couple of hundred men were sitting in a courtyard with arms raised in crosses above their faces, chanting and holding placards. These demonstrations used to take place on the city's streets, but they were banned from there and they had to move back inside the refugee accommodation where there's no one to disturb, no one even to notice them apart from a few cleaners and guards. We have been protesting, demanding repeatedly UNHCR in Indonesia to speed up the resettlement program for the refugees who have been living in Indonesia in a state of constant uncertainty, depression and frustration for the past eight years. Uh, my name is Shamsullah Husseini and I'm 20 years of age and I am originally from Afghanistan, belong to the most persecuted ethnic group called Hazara people. Shams is quite outspoken on social media and he's an active organizer in the refugee community, but I actually have never met him in person. What's he like? Yeah, thank you so much for coming and checking. Well, he's a writer. He's philosophical, very softly spoken and polite to a fault. We really appreciate it. It's really good. Thanks for taking us. So I will hold your thing. You can... He became my guide for the day. We are in a refugee accommodation in Skopang. Best in Batam, Indonesia. Just a year earlier, Shams was protesting as well, but from inside a detention centre. Yeah, they were sending videos and photos out through social media. And what I saw at the community shelter that day looked almost identical to that. This open community housing, this is open, but it's still a prison. We have a curfew. We go outside at 6am and we have to be present in accommodation at 6pm. We felt like we are in another detention centre. So we will go inside the, the rooms. Okay, this way, yeah? Yeah. So uh, this is the second floor, and this is one of the rooms. And it's very dark. Like It is very dark. Yeah, this is my room. So. What's your name? Malik. Mohammed. Yeah, we are from Sudanese. Uh, we are victim from the genocide happening in Darfur. Yeah. yeah. So you can see. One and two and three guys, they are sick for a long time and then they are sleeping. One guy, he's sick three years, he has a uh, stomach problem and uh, one of them has a kidney problem and every single day he cannot sleep. So as you see, now it's, the time is 11, 
these people are sleeping. Yeah, it's quarter to 12 in the day and, yeah, three of the four beds in this room have people still lying in it, looking pretty sick. Yeah, and we talk with migration, immigration. They said you can talk to with IOM. When you take message to IOM, IOM said we cannot treat all the people. The International Organisation for Migration runs these accommodation shelters. They're supposed to provide medical care, but according to their policy, it's only in life-threatening situations. Nine person. So you're showing me the bathroom yeah. for nine if, people? If you, yeah, if you want to take the shower, you can wait. You can wait two hours until you can take shower. So if you want to sit down, you can't sit down because don't have uh, enough space. Yeah. So you stay in bed or you go outside? Yeah, of course. That's better. We can stay outside. Yeah, yeah thank you so much. Thank you. As I was leaving, I noticed these pots. So you've got like plastic containers filled with cements on the end of metal poles, yeah? yeah exactly. I was wondering yeah. what they were. And Shams told me that this was DIY gym equipment. They want to prepare themselves. They want to be ready for the country that accept them. That's why they do not want to go to the country that they are sick, both mentally and physically. Though the, 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 the pressure is a lot on refugees, but again, they are trying to keep themselves busy and healthy. I can understand, I can relate to them because, you know, in my day-to-day also, there are at least 10 things that I want to do that I hear from my family later in the next country, later in the you know third country, after you are resettled. Mm. So it's just a painful, hopeful wait. Yeah, it was like I was looking at all these buff chiseled bodies, but they were barely kind of here. They weren't for this, you know. It is very small. It is very hot. It's completely like a box. When we stuff a thing inside it and lock the door. So this is the place where we are kept. Like we should not be comfortable. I think this is also part of the system which is designed to keep the people like in a bad situation so they get mentally and physically tired. You said that accommodation block was full of men. Are there families staying in bottom too? Yeah, that's where Shams took me next, to a rundown old hotel on the other side of the island where there's a couple of hundred families with kids living there. When we arrived, there were all of these police waiting for us. They started taking our photos, following us around, asking questions. Maybe immigration guards at the men's shelter had tipped them off and told them we were heading there. I don't know, but it certainly felt intimidating. Refugees then ushered me inside and they lined up to talk. You wanted to say something and then I think we have to go. We spoke quickly and very nervously. What I want to say is you are the first who came here to Batam from the foreign countries to take a record what's going on with the refugee here in Batam in this island. No one, no media came here. You are the first one who came here. What did they want to tell you? They wanted education, work rights to get out of there. Thank you 
We were all so jumpy. Every time the door opened, it was just another refugee who wanted to talk to me and tell me the same thing. I want to say something again. I'm so glad I wasn't there with you. I wanted to understand why there are all these rules and regulations from an Indonesian point of view. I'd seen an article in the Jakarta Globe by an immigration official from the Sumatran city of Pekanbaru. His name is Ilham. A lot of Indonesians only go by one name. My role when I visit the accommodation, I talk to the refugees and asylum seekers. I make sure they know the rules. Maybe sometimes they forget. They were not allowed to leave Pekanbaru for any reason. If they want to do something, for example, in the hotel, for example, they want to do gathering, they have to inform immigration first and they were not allowed to invite Indonesian guests or whoever to their accommodation. One time we enforced a rule that all asylum seekers and refugees have to wear a different identification card hanging around their neck because that's what the local government wanted. So how did you feel about enforcing those kinds of regulations? Uh, Sometimes, (laughs) personally, yeah, I didn't agree with all regulations. The refugees and asylum seekers, they were not really treated well. Ilham told me that he had so many questions about the work that he was doing that he needed to take some time out. And he did a research master's in the area before returning to his work in the immigration department. It's interesting that refugees and asylum seekers have been coming to or passing through Indonesia since the 1970s, and yet there's still such little awareness of who a refugee and asylum seeker is and where they're from and why they might be there. Yeah, yeah. In the past, the the refugees were accommodated in one island because the government didn't want them to integrate with the local communities. And in the past, the handling of the refugees was trusted to the army. But now the situation is different. And amongst the local community, what are the concerns about refugees and asylum seekers? Like many uh, local communities, they had fear. They were afraid that these migrants will create problems. The most tension with the local communities is that because in, in Pekanbaru, mostly are Afghan refugees and asylum seekers, and they are Shia Muslim. Because Indonesia's majority Sunni. Yeah, Sunni and Shia tension. But others than that, they are just afraid that maybe they having a relationship with the girls or they were afraid how long they going to live in Pekanbaru and also from the police. They tend to make very restrictive regulations. They limit their their movements in the city. This problem was not really uh, understood well, not only by the local communities, even my agency, my supervisor or people in immigration. The simple thing, they call them illegal migrants. So in 2016, there was this presidential decree, which was the first time that refugees and asylum seekers were actually acknowledged in any Indonesian legal document, I believe. Yeah, so this regulation provides uniform procedure in handling refugees and asylum seekers in terms of rescue, shelter, registration, security, all practices we have been doing for a long time. But what this regulation forgets to mention while refugees are in transit 
their basic rights are not really respected like allowing them to go to school for refugee children allowing them to seek employment those are not mentioned at all in this presidential regulation that presidential regulation is security based regulation but what indonesia needs to implement is basic rights And is there a movement towards rights-based regulations in Indonesia? No. The policymakers, Indonesian policymakers, tend to have view of refugee and asylum seeker problem. It's not their problem. And then it's still the dominant view of Indonesian policymakers. Another reason could be there is no pressure from international communities. The government thinks that the migrants, they only transit Indonesia until they get resettlement. And there's still one more meeting with Shams in Batam that you have to tell me about. Later that day, he came to my hotel room. He brought a bag of local fruit and I offered him melted Tim Tams, which he was thoroughly underwhelmed by. <laughs> I agree with Shams on that. I hate Tim Tams. I think they're gross. <laughs> We sat by the window and the afternoon light was fading away and we talked for hours. There were moments as we were talking about his life back in Afghanistan that his face would just light up, but then suddenly this shadow would fall back over it. And I just couldn't see past it. It was like he was consumed by something that I'd never be able to know. He brought a friend, Karim, who told me about their friend, Abbas Mohammadi. We were there this morning at the shelter where you're living and somebody pointed out the place where Abbas hung himself and I was shocked to see that it's right in the middle of the courtyard. It's a very central place. There's very few places to go in that shelter, nowhere to sit inside. How do you live in that place after something like that's happened? Mm-hmm. When I see that place, my heart burns. His room is just opposite mine. When I wake up in the morning, I'm reminded of him. I heard about this in September 2017. Abbas Mohammadi, a Hazar asylum seeker, and he was a father of five, committed suicide in that shelter. Karim and Abbas were best friends. And he said in detention, as well as in this community shelter, the two of them were always side by side. They did everything together. If I cannot forget how his family, his wife and children can forget. I know a boss for the past five years. He was not an ordinary person. He was very intelligent, kind and open-minded. He was very active in the community from the time he arrived to the camp until he was gone. That terrible night, I was asleep. A friend rushed into my room. He called me to walk up as fast as I could. We both hurried down the stairs. When I reached to, near to the metal bar, he was uh, hanging on the rope. 
it was like a terrifying moment for me and i was completely lost so one of his friend put his feet which was hanging on his arm and hold him up on his arms and someone brought a knife and cut the rope everyone was devastated they are trying to forget that moment with inhaling the smoke of the secret into their lungs and i was not a smoker i was just leaning my back on the wall and looking at the people no one was speaking to each other and everyone was in a state of shock and after that one every night the image of abbas was appearing in my dream and i woke up with the fear what do you think was going on for abbas he was detained for 13 months in detention center in a very difficult situation he came out of the detention center and he lived for another one and a half years in accommodation but nothing has been progressed was worried and also his future was completely unclear and he i think he thought that he couldn't handle this are you worried for anybody else in your community exactly two other people attempted suicide as well since then nobody can guarantee the life of someone living in detention i agree with him you can't tell when somebody is fed up with their life and their situation one day they're good the next day they attempt suicide so you never know mm We were talking so long that it started to get dark. When they mentioned curfew, we were suddenly reminded. Maghrib, the evening prayer was starting to float through the air. Shams and Krim would have liked to stay and have a cup of tea or some food, just something to remind us that we're all human. But instead there was this sudden hurry. We had to order a taxi and get them back to curfew. That's a pretty abrupt ending to such a big conversation. Yeah. It would have been nice to end another way. As they were leaving, I saw Shams looking around the hotel and I suddenly felt so embarrassed by how comfortable it was. When I entered into the detention center, I thought it is not necessary to humiliate or to dehumanize the refugees, to treat them with violence, with power. This four years of life in detention made me like stronger. I have a feeling that when someone is sitting beside me and he is hungry. and i have a lot to eat if i do not share something with that person at night how can i sleep with the, with the full stomach i think a person with a human feeling cannot go to the bed with with that feeling while they know that people are left on the border for 6 year for 7 years for 8 years
I'm Mojgan Marafizadeh. I'm Nicole Kirby. You've been listening to The Wait. Next episode, we're back on Mojgan's feet in Jakarta, and I want to know where she finds her fight. The first time I saw her, she was like, what is wrong with her? We need to solve the problem now, because the more we postpone, what will happen in our future? The Wait was written and produced by Nicole Kirby and co-hosted by me, Mojgan Marafizadeh. Michael Green is the co-writer and supervising producer. Sound design and mixing by Beck Fari. The Wait was produced in conjunction with The Guardian and first aired on their Full Story News podcast, with editorial support from Miles Martignoni at The Guardian Australia. Support for this project was provided by the Walkley Public Fund and the Judith Nielsen Institute Freelance Grant for Asian Journalism. A big thank you to everyone who shared their story for this series. Thanks also to Tessa Rex, Trish Cameron, Andre Dow, Jem Romold, Patrick Tumau, Ben Doherty and Abdul Karim Hekmat. Theme music by Emma Davis. Thanks for listening to this series. If you liked it, share it with your friend and leave us a rating and review. There are also photos, videos and more information on our website, theweightpodcast.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.